Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Revelation Communication. I am excited for today's episode as we're going to be doing something a little bit differently, but I'll get into that in a moment. Um, I just wanted to share a few reminders for everybody. Um, on Wednesday nights, we are having our Bible study right here at 7 p.m. We are going through the book of Revelation and enjoying that journey through a fascinating book um, also on Sunday mornings, we do have our worship service at 10 a.m. and want to invite you to join us um, for worship and for a great time in God's word on Sunday mornings. Um, there is a women's retreat coming up on March 26th and March 27th. I want to invite you, if you're a lady, uh, to join us and uh, have a great uh, uh, time with, uh, uh, with the women in fellowship and in worship and enjoying God's word. Um, also, almost upon us is Easter Sunday, April 4th. I want to invite you, if you're a Christer, that means you go to church only on Christmas and Easter, um, please consider Revelation Church. We'll be having our Easter uh, worship service at 10 a.m. on Sunday, April 4th. Um, also, if you are a man on April 13th, it is a Tuesday, um, we will be getting a study uh, in uh, a book called Men of Resolution, and I want to encourage you to join us uh, for a fascinating study and a look at what the Bible says about being a man, being a husband, being a father, and uh, I know it'll be encouragement to you if you are a man. Listen, you can find all the links to our podcasts, our sermons, our calendar, and all other information you're looking for on our website. Head over to www.revchurchcv.com for all that information. With that being said, I do want to share with you today that we're actually going to be doing something a little bit different in our podcast this morning. Um, it's a Q&A. I had actually uh, submitted on social media yesterday uh, an opportunity for some people to um, submit questions uh, that they might have for the Bible. And I do have some questions that I'm going to be answering uh, today. So thank you to those that uh, sent in some questions. Um, the first one I want to look at, and I'm going to take this uh, in order of easy to hard. Um, the first one I did want to look at is um, why did Jesus have to die such a horrible death? So um, before I start with the crucifixion itself, um, we need to understand just the brutality of Jesus's death and, and, and really what he went through. And, and then I'll answer the reason why. Jesus was struck multiple times with, with a fist um, across the face. He, he, was, he was buffeted, uh, the King James Version says. Um, Jesus was spit on, which is just a vile act, um, not only today, but back in the culture um, during Jesus' time, it was a very vile act. Um, the beard that Jesus had on his face was was plucked, was pulled out. Uh, somebody grabbed Jesus's beard, a handful of it, and and, and ripped his beard out. Um, and this all happened before he was scourged. Uh, Jesus was uh, stripped naked um, and with his hands tied up on a post and his back exposed. Um, Jesus was whipped repeatedly with a flagrum or a cat of nine tails. Um, and he was whipped over and over again. 
And let me explain what this flagrum is or this cat of nine tails is. Um, it had at the end of it nine leather thongs, if you will, or strands. And at the end of each strand were small beads that were embedded with glass, with rocks, with stones, with bones, um, all with the sole purpose of tearing open the flesh that it came in contact with. And listen, you can bet that these Roman soldiers that were striking Jesus with this flagrum or this cat of nine tails um, were very good um, at their job and knew exactly how to use it and where to use it on the body in order to, um, I guess, dole out the most pain um, and most punishment, inflict the most damage, if you will. Jesus also had a crown of thorns pushed down on his head. And I'm not talking bougainvillea thorns or rose thorns. I'm talking like two to three inch thorns um, that were pushed down as a crown um, onto the top of his head. Jesus was then led to Calvary. Um, bearing his own cross, a cross that he would eventually be nailed to. And, and as Jesus laid there in submission, um, nails were driven into his hands. You can imagine a, a nail roughly the size of a nail that would be a railroad stake um, was driven into his hand um, that was stretched out. Both hands had nails driven through it. And, and of course, we know that both his feet had a nail uh, driven through it as well. And really, the brutality of his death um, came at the expense of hanging on the cross. Um, it was an enduring and punishing death, if you will, where Jesus over time didn't die because of the beatings that he got, um, didn't die because of maybe the bloodshed of being ripped open with that cat of nine tails. He didn't die because of the crown of thorns that was shoved into his head. No, Jesus died of asphyxiation or suffocation, if you will, while while hanging on that cross, the weight of Jesus's body or the weight of the bodies of those that, that, that suffered um, crucifixion um, would be too much to bear on their rib cages and on their lungs. And eventually um, they would suffocate to death um, and, and that would be the way that they would die via crucifixion because they just didn't have enough strength or energy as they hang on this cross to hoist themselves up and try to get, if you will, a breath of fresh air. They just hung there and eventually they suffocated. But, but why such a horrible death? Well, because of the wretchedness of sin, to be quite honest with you. You know, if you if if you think about it, there is some twisted and messed up evil out there and the atrocities that people commit on a daily basis, all of which Jesus died for on that cross. Now think about it, and I'm going to the extreme here. What would you do as a father um, if you got your hands on someone who violated your teenage daughter? What would you do as a father if you got your hands on somebody that violated your infant son? Um, I'm only speaking for myself, but I would rip them apart. I would tear them to shreds. I would try to inflict the most possible painful punishment and the worst death that I can think of. But check this out. Jesus stepped in and said, wait. 
that death that he deserves, that punishment that he or she deserves, I will take place and receive it on their behalf. Now, the long arm of the law, of course, would inflict judgment in the sense that if somebody raped or if somebody molested or if somebody violated somebody, um, they rightfully should go to jail and should serve time in jail. But the sin or the, the, the act and the sin of the act, Jesus died for. That death that we deserve, that punishment that we deserve, Jesus says, I will take that place. I will receive it on their behalf. And so the sin of the world had to be dealt with because of its wretchedness and because of its wickedness. And instead of you and I dying the death that we deserve to die because of sin, Jesus did. And that's why his death was so brutal because it needed to be because of how terrible sin is in the eyes of God. The second question that I got was, is there any other way? Was there another way? And, you know, Paul says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. And so there was no other way. Um, there was no other way besides death that could pay for the sins of the world. But the great thing about that verse, if you know it, is that the gift of God um, of eternal life is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and so the wages of sin is death. So, so there is a death that is deserved. There is a death that, that, or a penalty, if you will, that needs to be paid. And God gave us that way. He gave us that payment. The penalty has been paid through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we um, can have everlasting life um, in heaven, in his kingdom with him. And, and I want to take that a step further. Is there any other way? You know, John 14 and 6, Jesus says this, I am the way the truth and the life and no man cometh to the father but by me so in the sense of there being any other way beside jesus the answer is absolutely not why because jesus and jesus alone paid the sin debt of us all there was no other way there was no other sacrifice that could be made for the entire world and because of that jesus can rightfully say I am the way. I mean, think about it. No, no other religion, no other deity, no other false god, no other false prophet came close to sacrificing what Jesus did for you and me. And, and that is why he is the only way. Um, the next question I want to get into, um, and this is where things get a little hairy, but uh, I'm relying on the word of God to answer uh, these questions. Can a woman be a pastor? Um, and I'm going to go to the Bible to answer this uh, because I don't want to insert my own opinion. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, Paul writes to Timothy this, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp or exercise authority over the man, but to be in silence. Paul also said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, let me say this. 
I believe as Paul writes these verses, as Paul has written these epistles, that there is an assumption that the men are doing what they're supposed to be doing in that they're leading their homes, they're leading their wives, they're leading their children according to God's word, and they're leading the churches as priests, as pastors, as bishops, as deacons, etc., also as outlined in the word of God. When they're not, the women are put in a position to have to step up and do the job. You know, there's a story in the book of Judges chapter 4 about a woman named Deborah who was a prophetess who was judge over Israel in a time where no man could be found to do so. I mean, there was men, but they weren't stepping up. They didn't want the responsibility. And and quite frankly, they were a bunch of cowards, um, if you want my opinion, because they didn't want to bear the burden of judging Israel as, as God had placed them over to do. She actually led Israel into battle against a king in Canaan named Jabin. Um, And and when she called upon a man, when she called upon men, uh, specifically there's a guy named Barak, to go to battle against this king, this guy said, I'm not going unless you go with me. Now, if that's not a show of cowardice, I don't know what is. But he said, nonetheless, I'm not going to go to battle, Deborah, unless you go with me. And so with no man to lead or judge Israel at the time, a woman stepped up and filled that role. And, you know, sadly, we see this in our culture and and in in our society today where you have absent men not fulfilling the role that God gave them as husbands, as fathers, and as church leaders. And, you know, I also want to make sure and make clear Paul's statement that it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Paul is not saying that once a woman enters the building that she's to remain silent, she's not to fellowship, she's not to talk with other people, she's not to worship and the like. Rather, it's referencing um, the speaking in the position of pastor. In fact, if it weren't for many women stepping up in the church to serve, I don't believe that many churches would exist today. I know in my experience in church, women outserve the men at least three to one. For every three women that serve, you can maybe find one man. And so women step up and serve the ministry a lot. And I thank God for women serving in the ministry. But when it comes to the office of pastor, The Bible gives us a definitive answer on whether or not a woman can hold that position. And listen, as many people want to argue that we're in a progressive society and that things have changed and we should be more open to the interpretation of the word of God, I would argue that God's word remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. As a matter of fact, God said in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. He doesn't change and his word doesn't change. And so we must teach his word accordingly, not with opinionated interpretation, but with what is written. The fourth and final question, can a person who is divorced get married again? Let me start out by saying this, God hates divorce. He said so in Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. And Jesus even took it a step further and said in Mark 10, 8, 
what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. In other words, if God has joined together man and woman uh, in, in holy matrimony under the union of marriage, he says, let not man put asunder. Don't let it be divided. Don't let it be taken apart, if you will. However, um, divorce in the scriptures was only permitted because of man's sin and was not a part of God's original plan for marriage. You know, when Jesus was asked um, about divorce by the Pharisees, he answered in, in Matthew 19, 8, Moses answered, because of the hardness of your hearts suffered you to put away or to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And, and so it was written in the law that divorce was okay because of the hardness of the hearts of God's people, but from the beginning, it was not so. Based on a biblical reason for divorce, that is where a partner leaves because of sexual immorality or because an unbeliever no longer desires to live with the believing spouse, then can the faithful partner remarry because the divorce was on biblical grounds. The Bible is clear that those who divorce on any other ground should not get married because in doing so, it's an act of adultery. And you can see Mark 10, 11, and 12 for further interpretation of that. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's better that you remain unmarried if you left your spouse because you sinned against them. You know, divorce is a cop-out for many unhappy couples. They assume that, that divorce is, is easier than staying together. You know, every reason for divorce is an irres irreconcilable difference. But it's a cowardly act when there's no biblical base or biblical grounds for it. You know, I I've said it before. If husbands love their wives... If the marriage is rooted in Christ, if God and his word are the foundation of it, if Jesus is the centerpiece of the marriage union, and if it's looked at as holy, if it's represented the way it ought to be as Christ is represented as the bridegroom and the church is the bride, the word divorce should be stricken from every ounce of vocabulary that is within a married couple. But can someone get divorced, uh, excuse me, remarried after a divorce? Yes. But God and his word must support the reason for it and the reason behind it. Hey, listen, folks, I really appreciate those questions. Um, I, I hope and my number one hope in answering them is that I did it according to the word of God. Um, if I did not, please forgive me. Um, I am open to your correction um, based on the word of God. Um, but secondly, I also hope that it helped you understand God's word a little more um, in regards to these questions. Um, if you have any more questions regarding the Bible, um, head on over to our website, www.revchurchcv.com. Scroll down to the bottom, leave me a message, and I'd be more than happy to answer that uh, for you. Hey, listen, folks, thank you for listening. I'm Solomon Stewart with Revelation Communication.